Jason, the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Monday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, ETSU basketball victorious in a classic again at Green Stadium, although it played out um, a little differently than I thought it was going to play out. It was a little low scoring, but I did think turnovers would be a big key. It was good to see ETSU get off to a good start. We knew VMI was a second-half team. They would make a comeback. Interesting game with some yellow flags, but other than that, ETSU pick up the win. They move on. Now they sit at 8-1 and one VMI, now game behind Mercer, Chattanooga, and ETSU with Chattanooga and Mercer playing next week, ETSU and Mercer the week after that. And, of course, Buck play Catamounts. So let's talk about Jason Andes, Mike Gallagher. Did you say ETSU basketball? I don't know. I might have. It's that time. Crossover. I will say this. I was very proud. I only twice I can remember mixing up shot clock and play clock, and I think it was once in each game, and I had set my over-under with Randy Sanders at three and a half. So I, I – I, I felt good about just one mistake in each one. I think you stacked the deck on him. You probably took the over, and you're like, okay, well, now i got to go out of my way to do extra well on this exact thing. Yeah, well, that's true. I may have, uh, just despite Coach Sanders and our tater top wars that we had. The Bucks did extra well defensively on Saturday over at Green Stadium, and gosh, three points. And I was going to go back and look at the last time VMI scored three or less than a half. I didn't do it because you have to look at, you know, half by half and, you know, it's crossover season and just a ton going on and, uh, you know, you're already working like, you know, extra whatever, 20, 30 hours a week. And so I didn't do it. But uh, really, really impressive performance. And I thought most impressively so, and Coach Sanders and yourself talked about this post game. but you look at VMI's offense and they throw for, what, 463 two weekends ago and Seth Morgan sets the record for, you know, what, I think it was offensive yards, total offensive yards yeah, in the total, game. Yeah, total yards. Yeah. And they were able to keep absolutely everything in front of them this week. Like, you think 463, and you're like, okay, even if you throw it, say, 60, 70 times, you're still getting 9, 10 yards per attempt. And that's a really high number, if you're familiar with that stat. And you look at what they did – on Saturday, and you throw it 44 times for, what, 248? Okay, you had Colin Ironsides, that's 270 total. But you're able to chase the starting quarterback from the game that the previous week set a record in the conference for total offense. Ironside comes in. I think they were just trying to get a spark. You know, can Ironside do this, that, more mobile, more athletic, you know, get him on the run some, which that part of the game did work. Uh, Morgan later ran a touchdown back in when he came uh, into the ball game for Ironside. Once Ironside couldn't provide that spark, but so they can both run a little bit. But I was just incredibly impressed that ETSU was able to limit absolutely anything getting behind them. I went back and I looked, and I think I found two completions that went for more than 20 yards. And now, normally in a regular game, you're saying, oh, okay, well, you know, that's pretty average. Um, against VMI, who's going to throw, 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 throw. I thought it was incredibly impressive, aside from Jacob Harris and that, I think it was a 27-yarder down the right side that got him over 3,000 yards for his career um, that put VMI in scoring position. Outside of that, there were no real over-the-top shots. I mean, there were no real attempts over the top. Um, Buccaneers secondary and their entire defensive game plan, they made the most of the bye week to me. I think that extra film study, that extra time to say, okay, what are we going to take away? How are we going to attack this? They worked it to perfection. I thought the depth showed as well. They got a couple of defensive linemen back, Kamen Cody, who actually forced the fumble, and then Rodney Wright, who had a sack. Um, 
Rodney didn't play against Furman, came in Cody his first game of the season. And then Zion Alexander, the nickel that they were pretty high on when Quinn Smith went out, had that shoulder injury. He comes back after the bye week, and he picks off a pass. So I thought having a little bit more rotation, having depth, and honestly the defensive line more than any other unit looked fresh. I mean, just, you know, I thought rather they got a chance to just rotate more guys, rather just the time off was good, rather all of that played into it. But I thought it started with the defensive line looking fresh. I thought Billy Taylor's game plan of mixing up the coverages instead of, you know, traditionally more of a man-to-man, you know, ETSU-type coverage, especially in third-down situations, you know, man-to-man with either cover one or cover zero. And I thought basically the game plan was make them go 12, 14 plays and be perfect. Take all the short underneath throws and see if they'll settle or see if they'll make a mistake. And early, they made mistakes. They were forcing the ball. He wasn't taking – he being Seth Morgan wasn't taking it. The post-game conversation with Jared Folks, and we asked him about the interception, and he says, well, yeah, that was a defensive play that we put in at 9 o'clock Saturday morning. And I just shake my head at, like, what level is the understanding of the defense? And we talk about how the offense has evolved, but let's talk about the defense. What level of that? And veterans do you have that your coach is like, you know what? After studying more film between Friday night and Saturday after the entire game plan is in, hey, if I call this play, here's the difference and here's what I want you to do. And then the first time they run that play, it leads to an interception with Jared Folks is incredible. And that's after two full weeks to prepare. Like, think about the gears that are turning. And Coach Sanders has talked about this leading through the bye week with you on the coach's show. And then uh, I believe in your pregame chat, too, that at this time of year, with everything they've accomplished, there can't be what-ifs. And the coaching staff, we know, has bought into that. If they're up late Friday nights in, oh, geez. You know Billy Taylor, I mean, the man has a legendary work ethic and just constantly is scheming and thinking about what the defense can do. I mean, there's a reason his defenses are always so good, year after year after year. They're so impressive. There's a reason he's been able to stick around at – an FCS level for so many years, and you're just coming up with stuff after 13 days of prep the night before to add on to an already impressive game plan. Everyone's just pushing the right buttons, whether it's Coach Taylor, Coach Sanders, and as you've talked about throughout the year with players that come on with you post-game, they all repeat the same lines. They all say the same things as Coach Sanders and the rest of the coaching staff, which is is how you know they're bought in. Turnovers were the thing we talked about on Thursday coming in. That was going to be a big game changer, and it looked like it was going to favor ETSU. The Bucks were plus two. DMI was minus three on the season, and that was a separation of like four or five spots in the Southern Conference. And it was Zion Alexander. It was Jared Folks. Offense didn't have to do much there, right? I mean, those two interceptions, 14 points off turnovers, and then you have the fumble recovery by Tyree Robinson, of course, is always around the ball. That is in the red zone, another red zone turnover forced. I think that's the second fumble recovery, and there's been four official interceptions, but there's also two other interceptions that started on plays that are just outside the red zone. Um, Really the number that we were talking about on the ESPN Plus side was the amount had to do 30 because when they got to 30, they were 6-0. When they didn't, they were 0-2. And with the first half they had with ETSU making it so tough on them and – 
Then really, the Bucks taking out the run game almost the entire day. I mean, they kept everything in front of them, including the running backs, and they did end up using all three, did VMI. Rashad Raymond came in and kind of provided a little bit of a spark, but I think three yards a carry the entire day, 34 for like 101, which is the fewest rush yards that they've got all year. I think 117 was a previous low, and I think it was like 66 yards less than they've averaged throughout the year. Um, you're right. I mean, we talk about the offense over and over and over. We've beaten that horse to death. We don't talk about the defense as much, I think, because we've become accustomed to just great performances, and they put in another one. Just one penalty on the defense, which was early on that substitution. If you remember, just the Bucks got called in, right. you know, kind of trying to shift defense on. So they made an adjustment, right, because VMI had the previous week gone a little quicker at times, and so they obviously had watched film and saw ETSU and struggled to do it. And then I think – VMI was going so fast. Seth Morgan took a big hit on a scramble play and didn't get down and came up shaking his left hand, which I, I don't think affected, or I'm, I'm not played quarterback. I don't know that that affected a lot, but he threw two interceptions right after that, and virtually back-to-back plays. And I think whether it was a spark, whether it was just a, hey, uh, kid, grab a headset, watch a series, you know, let's let him slow down for you, you know. And then he gets the ball back with four minutes to go in the first half, and because he's more of a thrower than Ironside, then they put him back in, at least down for a field goal. I thought special teams was hit or miss again for ETSU. The hit was – I've not seen where uh, Haynes Eller basically normally puts you know one finger on the turf and then he makes the little you know kind of flash your hand to, to snap it well. It was weird because I remember watching it, and he went really aggressive with it. And I thought, well, that was just – in my mind, I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Robert saw it too. And uh, then the guy jumps offside and blasts him and like, oh, my goodness. So, you know, then you get a five-yard penalty, and that led to a touchdown. I mean, some, some, that's something I've not seen before. I don't know if they've had that or that's something they put in or something they were like, hey, you know, if we, maybe they haven't been in a field goal situation less than five yards at, in a time where they felt like they could try that. I don't know if that's a play where it's like, hey, go real hard, and then, you know, hey, Mullins, all you got to do is count, you know, to three or something and then snap instead of snapping immediately. Because after one play, you know, the, you don't have to worry about the cadence throwing off the offensive line, right? Because they're, they have no idea. They're, ball snaps, they move, boom, they're, they're going, right? There is no actual verbal, you know, set hut or whatever or clap or whatever guys are doing now. But I thought that was, that was good. I thought there were a couple just penalties, terrible blatant blocks in the back and stuff on returns where ETSU would have had great field position um, and didn't get a chance to do it. I thought VMI killed themselves with their penalty right after the touchdown that uh, made them kick off at the 20-yard line, and ETSU was able to get that extra field goal to go up to two scores again. Take over like the 50, yeah. Right, and, and there were penalties, I know Coach uh, referenced it several, several times in the postgame show, uh, but he also mentioned Scott. Scott Walkenheim was pretty fired up over – a couple things. I know he was really fired up, uh, Coach Walkenheim was, when there was 2 one on the clock when he ran out of bounds. And the rule is, if you run out of bounds two minutes or under, then the clock doesn't start. Well, I don't think Coach Walkenheim realized he went out of bounds. The receiver did at 2 one All he did was look up and see it was running under two minutes. And it's been a long time. I think I actually got him out of a play and led to them um, not really ha- having the right personnel on the field for the third down, which led to them deciding to keep their final timeout and just kick the field goal. Then try the onside kick. But I, I thought it was interesting. ETSU continues, and poor Nate Adkins. It seems like every time there is a touchdown that is called back, 
it is on the backside of the play or something that doesn't matter or just or the tight end. I think Cole West has one too, but Atkins I can think about the the blindside block where he didn't knock anybody down at Western Carolina. I can think of Noah West on the Juwan Martin play where there was a pillback, but again, he didn't blast the guy and the guy stayed on his feet. Then there was a play where Atkins was called for block below the waist, but on the replay, he is standing up and the guy he hit is standing up. So I'm not sure if that was just misidentified or what, but I, I just, I'm baffled at, I get, and I'm pretty lenient on officials can, considering the crew I work with. It's pretty, they're pretty harsh. But I I just don't, I, I've never understood, and we talked to Coach Sanders about this a few weeks ago, I've never understood on something way opposite of the field that really had no effect. I, I'm all about game management. And, he, and I brought this up last year because in the spring I thought ETSU got the benefit of a call that called a touchdown back on a guy that was flagged for something that was literally on the 11th defender away from the play. And I just have a problem. with, And, and I had a problem when it went for ETSU, and I have a problem when it goes against ETSU. I just don't understand how somebody standing on top of it, two or three officials staring right at it don't. Then you get the flag from 50 yards away. And then it's really on the 10th or 11th defender that wasn't even going to be in on the play. And I get a penalty is a penalty is a penalty, right? We, but I, I just don't I, – I think the best officials and, you know, kind of let that go. Now, I don't know if every play is graded at such, and that was sort of the conversation I had with Robert Harper and Matt Wilgham during the game, was I don't know if they're graded so harshly that, like, if they let one of those go, like that affects how they move up or how they're graded. Or, I've often wanted to ask the basketball uh, you know, sort of evaluators because I guess just get more access to them because they're courtside near me at, at some places and just ask them, are they graded on like every single call and that affects them or is it like put in a context of game management or, or, or what and, and maybe I need to come up with a good basketball example to ask of them because football, I know my example would be that. I don't know basketball. I'd have to think about what's a good example because everything's a little more compact. It's usually right in there um, happening right in front but I I just don't get some of the calls. And that was a big call because it took that touchdown off the board. And I was all over the Quay home. So was say, I. Oh. Yeah, so was I. It was like a deflated was I actually yelled. I felt bad. I yelled at Robert because Robert like, there's a flag. And I was like, oh, Robert, you ruined it. And, yeah. I, and I mean, it wasn't Robert. But, I mean, still I was all over Brandon Walker's breaking the school record. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was just on a long run and had time to build and breathe. And, I mean, it was a lot of things to, to do for that. I was also bitter about – and this isn't, I don't believe, directly on the officials themselves, and you'll be able to explain this better than myself, but I was also all over the Jacob Harris touchdown where there was about, it seemed like, a mile, and obviously I'm exaggerating by 5,279 feet, but his foot was not even close to the sideline on that touchdown. They go to the replay review, and... There was green in between oh. his foot and the sideline. Yeah, well, Jay Graham, I said it on, on air, Jay Graham looked at me. The former Tennessee yes. running back, pro, pro, you know, five years in the league or whatever. On staff first year, yeah. Taps the window because I'm in disbelief. And he looks at me and he shrugs his shoulder and just kind of lips wow like five times. Like, wow. Like, so explain. Well, everyone in the building is confused. I, so explain for people. And they showed it on the big screen, too. It, and they zoomed course, in on it. Now, of course, you're not going to have too many complaints around William B. Green Jr. Stadium on no. homecoming that the call went no. ETSU's way. But explain for people how that replay system works. So. Not in terms of the technical side of sure. it, but the communication between the referee and the person in the booth. Okay, so they have two communicators. They have uh, 
they have an official and what they call a communicator. So there's two guys from the Southern Conference that's paid, or in most leagues it's two. Now there may be more, but I've not heard of anybody going with just one. So there's two people actually looking at every play in the booth. And then if they determine, and I'll, uh, and it's obviously more prevalent on turnovers and touchdowns and first downs. Those are the three things, like, they're harping on. They have said, like, yes, if a ball is misspotted at the 38 and it should have been the 37, but it's, you know, going to be third and 14 or third and 13, nobody's going to stop the game and move it. Like, they've openly talked about, like, let's – and, again, that goes back to my game management. It's game management. Do we really want to get that third and 12, third and 13 right? You know what I mean? I, I just feel like – so, once the scoring play happened, and it was tiptoe to the sideline, so you kind of felt like they were going to look at it to conf- confirm it. If they aren't 100% sure, the rule of thumb is you hit the buzzer, stop play, then the head referee comes over to the guy wearing the green vest and green hat, and then he gets the headset on, and then he's basically just talking and communicating with who's upstairs. This is unlike some leagues where they'll have the monitor so the head referee can have input. In the Southern Conference, and actually in most non-Power 5 leagues, it's just a headset, and you are actually just listening to the guys in the booth make the decision. Most of those guys are, uh, matter of fact, I think four of the replay head of replay officials are former, um, like Bob Johnson, former head referee, just recently kind of retired from the field. So they're pretty fresh and new, but they are older, but they are been around, supposed to you know, know the book. And then basically they are looking for the undisputable, right? That, that, that's, the, that's the thing that I think drives everybody crazy. So undisputable evidence. Now, I'm assuming they had the same look we did. I, I would not believe that our crew that works for ETSU that is running the cameras and, and sending the replays back, and then I know not just our people have the ability to zoom in, but again, the replay tech, such as D'Amico Childress, that people have heard on air before. I know D'Amico was working the game. He has the ability to even zoom in on top of the zoom in. So they can get as close as they can with the cameras we have. Now, our cameras aren't maybe the 6K things of the Super Bowl where you can look at a snot bubble from a long way away. But they look at it and then determine. And how I thought it was pretty clear. Yeah. Robert thought it was clear. Don Hellman, who never says it's clear, said it was clear. And Wiljam on the field said it was clear. And Jay Graham's giving me a wow. And I just, at that point, am baffled. And I could see why Scott Walkingham had a – now, they ended up scoring. Yeah, so but, it didn't matter but, so much. But, but there was still, an extra minute of time. And you that's never right. That can play into the game yeah, later. That, it, was, it was an interesting non-reversal. I thought it was clear. I am sick of everybody hammering officials for every single call at every single level. It is absolutely absurd. And it's as bad as it's ever been, I think. But it does just show you how bad the officiating was on Saturday, that it didn't just stop with the guys in the field. It extended all the way to the booth. I mean, that was absolutely horrible. And I, and I never crush officials on air just because, again, I'm just so sick of it. It's overdone. It's played out. Guys make mistakes, whatever. Uh, but I said that was terrible a few times. In, in, in the basketball game Friday and football oh, Saturday. Oh, there were like six technicals, weren't there? There was like six or seven. Oh. I mean, they rejected a coach in an exhibition game of a Division II team that was going to lose by, like, 70. Game management. Game management. Oh, my gosh. Gary Maxwell, he must have had a bad car ride over. And Gary's one of the better ones. Honestly, how? I don't know. He was in a bad mood. I I, I don't have an explanation. I I agree. I tend to – I hate when – 
And and I brought this up too. There were other times ETSU had a chance or had an opportunity to overcome. It's like the Furman in third quarter. Yes, that was that last year where the it was called on the wrong team, which I've still never seen in my entire life. But you still had a quarter and a half. There were still things you could do. And yes, that one call was big. And yes, this one call would have extended the lead for ETSU from a touchdown to field goal. Could have changed complexion. But I mean, there's so many things where you know, hey, did they let this hold go? There's so many things you don't see. I think just with people social media now, and they'll zoom in on their TV or Odell Belkin's dad, right? He's yeah. he's taking videos off the TV, and oh, he's open here, he's open here. Well, what's the play call? What's the read? What what, what is supposed to happen there? Great. Is he a decoy on that play? I'm, I'm sure Odell Jr. didn't come to the fence and say, well, actually, Dad, on this play, this is what's but but you know what I mean. So I I think it comes into that, I, and I think. You know, Coach did say, look, they, they do have an incredibly difficult job. I think and maybe it was Jared Folk. I think Jared Folks came to the rescue. He did. He, he was the guy who was like, look, they have an incredibly difficult job. And they did a really good job, just in case you're listening. I thought that was funny. Yeah, no. That was good, no. That was good Jared. But it, it, was, it was a situation where I don't I, – I, I lose it when there's, like, the obvious call. The ticky-tack call, I've always been a fan of, just let grown people settle it. Right. You know, and, and just go. So I hate, and it's more so in basketball than I think in football. Football, there tends to be less penalties just because of the nature of the game, because all that other stuff. <clears throat> but, I mean, there's a false start. You miss that. I mean, how do you miss that, right? If a guy is, you know, false started, I, I get, like, there was a play where I thought it was pretty evident that Huzzy was – jersey was grabbed and was pulled and now in fairness in the replay it was but when you watch it on replay and slow it down it was a very coy job by the defensive back and it probably didn't look like it and so by my rule of thumb i just said it shouldn't been called and it wasn't and i'm okay with that i'm okay with you know if you have to caution and not calling fouls or penalties then don't do it and i don't want to mar the whole thing in this but it has been it's been pretty baffling, I think, some of the plays and calls that have taken <clears throat> touchdowns away. Or the replay. The replay that, that clearly, I think, should have overturned and went to a touchdown. Neither one of them ended up affecting the game. I mean, ETSU right. had chances to score after that. They kicked field goals, didn't get touchdowns. And that, that leads me to this. Last year's stat, this was common. ETSU had 280 yards on 15 plays. And then the other 65 plays had 92 yards. That was almost – I went back and looked at it. That's about how it worked out last year, that 75% of the offense was on about a quarter of the plays instead of the other way. And then ETSU had been pretty good about 50-50. And so, yes, ETSU got big plays. And, yes, VMI dared you to throw it, and they had to take chances. And ETSU had 11 runs of over 10 yards. So they were getting – they were committed, even though we talked about eight you know, eight guys in a box. What are they going to do? ETSU did not ab- abandon the run as I felt like maybe Furman they, they did. Again, I, again, if Randy gets – Sanders gets a look, he thinks he's got advantage, he's going to take advantage of it. And that's, that's how he calls the games. But I felt like ETSU was so committed to the run, they put in the wildcat. That, yeah. that, that told me – that he was going to figure out a way to run the football and not just chunk it around all the time. And I think there were three times they ran the Wildcat. And I thought it was interesting because they were able to get a little bit of a numbers advantage going their way. And I don't think either either any of the three plays hit for, you know, 10, 12, 15 yards or whatever. But they got positive yards, three, four, it moved, it got going. I did love the reasoning behind it from Coach Sanders that, well, VMI wants to put 
two guys more than you in that situation in the box where every other team is going to usually do they want to outman you by one if you've got you know six guys standing in the block they want to have seven and then bmi they want to have eight so what do we do we take out the quarterback because he's not and then we're going to equalize numbers but i did think that was brilliant um 242 yards in the ground and i 100 percent agree with you i think that this game plan and we can talk about it you know all day and had the coaches on the back and everything, specifically coming off the Furman game where you and me, I think, were a little eyebrows raised, like, wow, they stuck with the pass a long time, even though nothing was working. I thought the approach in both the run and the pass game was spectacular. 242 on the ground, which is almost exactly what VMI gives up per game. I was wondering why they were taking so many shots deep. Now, of course, you have Will Huzzy, who is spectacular, right? I mean, you look now, and he's over 600 yards on the season, and that's the first receiver to have more than 509 since the Buccaneers brought football back. Dalton Ponchilla back in 2015. The next touchdown he has will tie the most touchdowns through the air in a single season since football has been back. Vinny Lowe had four. Now, I know four isn't very many, but it's just to tell you how much further along Will Huzzy is than essentially every other receiver has been for ETSU since they did bring football back. I think I counted five targets for Huzzy in the first quarter, and all of them were over 20 yards. Like, it was incredible. The one play that they wanted to do in the passing game was, let's air it out to Will Huzzy and see if he can just beat Alex Oliver again and again and again. And credit to Oliver because he was getting worked early by Will Huzzy. And then they even threw it to Malik Murray deep when they put Oliver on Murray, which I thought was funny. It really showed me that they were just picking on Oliver, even though he's an all- freshman guy from last year but they were just going after him and early on he did have to eat some crow like it was bad but he was able to bounce back in a pretty impressive way after uh, really getting picked on a lot of that first half but I thought it was a brilliant game plan to say look we're we're going to accept that we're not going to have a high completion percentage and this is what coach Sanders said after the game it's going to be 40 45 50 whatever it ends up being I think it was about 49 of 22 for Tyler Rydell but we're going to get big yards. And, of course, that doesn't count the penalties um, that were drawn either. Uh, we're going to get big yards on those plays. So it's not going to look pretty in the stat line, but it was an approach that was intentional. It was an approach that worked. It was an approach that allowed ETSU to have some maybe unconventional balance. And they also did it, I think, just the right amount of times because I think Half of the 22 completions roughly were deep shots, or attempts, sorry, were deep shots. Um, But to only throw it 22 times and really stick with the run when you do have six guys coming, seven guys coming, eight or nine in the box. I mean, they were bringing Ethan Castleberry down the safety and putting him five, six yards off the line of scrimmage, and they just had the one-on-one matchups. ETSU, for the first time, I think, trusts their receivers to go and win one-on-one matchups, and that was shown throughout the game. I I think it was evident that, they like to match up with Huzzy, and I think Rodell, if he could have hung, I think the first drive, there was some definite miscommunication on whatever receiver and quarterback were Agreed. because there were some looks between the receivers and the quarterbacks, and I got fixed pretty quickly on uh, just different things. One time, I guess, Rodell thought somebody was going to break off, then the next time somebody did break off, he threw long. Yep. So they, the first three and out was interesting because – you know, just we haven't seen that much miscommunication. And that got corrected. And then watching Will Huzzy really go to work, and, I mean, he caught 
you know, the first couple passes, I think 26 and 23 yards. Then he had a pass interference call. Then the catch he made, a Will Huzzy catch. I don't know how else to describe it in the second half, third quarter, where he got grabbed and shoved to the ground and he still reached back. It caught a pass for about 35, 40 yards. It was impressive. So, and I, honestly, Rodell, I think that I mean, obviously every game you want a couple throws you could take back, but the post route, I think, and that was the one where it was a slight tug on the jersey. I think if he had that throw over again, because they'd ran so many, you know, go routes, go routes, go routes, and all of a sudden, you know, he took four or five steps for a go and then just blistered, not even stemming the route. I mean, he basically four or five steps and said, boom, I'm going straight to the post. And I thought, boy, they set that up beautifully. He was open. I think that was the – between that and I can think of a third down where Julian Lane Price was running a crosser that was just wide open, and he overshot him. Other than those two throws, I thought, again, he did a great job of not forcing the ball. I mean, taking shots deep's one thing. But, I mean, he didn't force it in there. Never felt like Tyler Riddell put you in any danger. I think there was a couple of run checks that – I thought he could have got out of, but I think the game plan was to run the football. And so it's hard to argue because, again, they were successful in that. When you have 11 runs over 10 yards, and, I mean, you know, it was one of those where they bottle up Holmes and a little bit the first couple series. And what do we talk about? Third series, always Jacob Sailors. And, again, Sailors got the first carry of the game. They put both backs out there. And Sailors got some big runs. And, honestly, twice I thought was going to score, and he barely got tripped up. He had a 21-yard, 19-yard. And, and got him down the field. And then Quay Holmes, they, they had the typical Quay Holmes drive. It's amazing. When a team scores a touchdown, Randy Sanders says, we're going to slow the game down, we're going to take control, and we're going to pound it with Quay Holmes. He has like seven straight carries. Eight straight, yeah. Uh, it was incredible. And and they go down and, sure enough, get points on the board and just settled. And, you know, my stat's still true. The two touchdowns VMI scored, ETSU got points on the board. So 13 of 19 now, right? 13 of 19. Wow. They still did not score after the field goals. It's incredible. They're over. They still have not answered a field goal. They don't get mad unless they score a touchdown, Mike Gallagher. That that is the one thing there. I thought punting, uh, Nate Brackett was great. I thought Tyler Keltner was phenomenal again. Kick coverage and punt coverage was great. The return game was disappointing because there were plays to be made and penalties just kept backing ETSU up. Are we missing any other category? or any other players, we've gone very long here yeah. and on a long show. Uh, just props to Donovan Manuel, career high in tackles of 16, and he blasted a couple of cadets. I mean, just put them Those into crossers. another dimension. Oh. <laughs> and, and that was the thing. Like, ETSU was pretty much setting a hard line, it seemed like, a lot, of, pretty much the first down markers, right? And then they were still throwing those crossers, and, oh, Seth Morgan and Colin Ironside left their guys out to dry a couple of times. Um, late on in the game, VMI was really decimated at receiver. Jacob Harris made that big catch and then went down, I think, hard on his shoulder. He was carrying an upper body injury into the game. Well, he went to we the tent three times. Yeah, I don't think we saw him again. And then Leroy Thomas, I don't remember seeing him on the second half for VMI once. Um, I started to notice it around early in the fourth quarter. Yeah, he took a shot. Yeah, so there, there were a couple of guys that they didn't have out there late. Um, I mean, because that's when V.J. Johnson, who hadn't played right, much this year, right. started making some catches. Yeah, so, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, so, so it was it was bad at receiver late, but um, now, I mean, the 26th game of the 39, the Coach Sanders' coach has been separated by one score. <laughs> Just time and time what, again. So, what's it? so the, 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 the best stat line I could give you was, and uh, 
buddy of mine who's degenerative sent me a message. He said, hey, you realize the ETSU line opened at 7.5 and, and closed at 6.5, and, <laughs> and it landed on 7. <laughs> He's like, can you imagine, wow. like, the people, the ebb and flow of everyone watching that game no matter what? Like, did they need the field goal? Did they not? It said just – it, 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 it's amazing sometimes how the wise guys are, are kind of locked into it. Of course, my argument is you could just take any ETSU game and throw something between three and seven, and you're going to be right there. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know. When you, I think you sent me it was seven and a half, and I just sent you back LOL. Hmm. And that LOL was definitely because, of course, we know it's going to be separated by seven or less. Yeah. But that's uh, hilarious that it ended up on seven. Uh, it's crazy. I want to check scenarios, but we probably <laughs> should either do that quickly on the other side of this break or just save it. FCS playoff. Yeah, let's save the scenarios. All right, let's just take a quick break. We'll do the uh, recap right for this time. I'm Sam Osakiak on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Sandos and the sidekick. We have ignition. Some production work that'd be a yeah, first. That'd be awesome. Uh, this is going to be a quicker segment today. There is tons of show to get to. Already had tons of show. Quite honestly, there wasn't a lot to talk about outside of the Bucks game, except for Furman and Western Carolina. For Furman, again, no Devin win, but they didn't have too many difficulties moving the ball on the ground. Dominic Roberto, you and me both love him, and he showed up. 196 yards on the ground, a whopping four touchdowns, two in each half, and despite an interception return for a touchdown within the first minute of the game for Western Carolina, Furman was ahead with like one minute to go in the first half, 28-17, to 17, but Western did the Randy Sanders and scored right before the half, then less than two minutes into the second half, got another touchdown to take the lead back, 31-28, then Furman got back-to-back scores, it was 42-31 going to the fourth, but Western's offense just wouldn't quit, and after a T.J. Jones one-yard plunge, Three minutes later, an 85-yard wide open. I mean, wide open. 85-yard Rogan Wells to Kenny Benjamin connection for what ended up being the game-winning touchdown. Furman, three chances to retake the lead after the touchdown. They go three and out, fumble a punt. I should say that it was fumbled around midfield, but he fielded the punt like the 20-yard line, had a great return, and then it was punched out. Western recovers, and then the very audacious... 62-yard field goal right at the end of the game. With two different kickers. Did you see that? I, I saw that it was not the starting kicker that took the field goal. So I think Bleak Road was out there, and they were calling timeouts to ice. Okay. And Bleak Road got a chance. I think he told him, hey, if they call no timeout, go ahead and snap it, let me kick it. Mm. He was about 12 yards short. <laughs> so then they brought in the second kicker. Yeah. The f- redshirt freshman, whose name's Lumi right now, and he tries it, and, of course, it's He's short. Like eight yards short, yeah. And I was like uh, – after the first one was short, I was like, all right, boys, that's, I mean, we don't think Sisson can throw it 50 yards. I right. mean, by the time he back up, roll around, I mean, 50, I don't know. To I'll, say that, like, because that, I'm sure, would have been a program record. Like, ETSU's program record is 54 <laughs> yards. FCS kickers just generally don't have that kind of leg. Like, you'd have to figure 
that whatever you could drop on offense would give you a better chance than that, right? I, I would think so. I would. I, I'm going to ask Randy Sanders that, Coach. If you're down, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're down one, and you got a 62-yard field goal attempt, are you hell marrying, or are you kicking a field goal? I'm going to ask him. Uh, I may even ask him today. And to be fair, conference. like with Tyler Keltner, you probably have as good of a shot as with anyone in the FCS. But 62. I mean, uh, come I, on. I, I, <laughs> Let's be real. I don't know. I, I thought maybe they knew something we didn't, but no, that that wasn't close. I, I don't know. All right, that, I thought we nailed this game. Yeah. I mean, as far as us talking about it, previewing. By the way, did you see the first touchdown score by Jacob Harris, the other Jacob Harris, the unknown oh, no, Jacob Harris? No. It's almost Looks as like good as Josh I was going to say it's almost as good as Josh Allen. The only thing I'll say I did miss, and I'm openly going to admit this, I said, you know, Western would be able to score, but I didn't think they would be able to hit long plays. And then the game winner's an 85-yarder where a guy got lost by, like, 20 yards. Oh, that, that's the only – I mean, just – it's one thing to have a, you know, sort of a, a deceiving play, and then you bust one for a long one for 33. It's another one when it's a straight drop back, and you're rolling, you're rolling, and all of a sudden, oh, good, there's a guy running way past everybody. And I don't know what the miscommunication was because Furman is generally pretty good at that. Big fan, Dominic Roberto. I think run the ball in Western. I think ETSU will be able to run the ball in Western. I think Western just does what they can defensively. They do a decent job of being aggressive to force turnovers because they've had trouble stopping people. But I thought Furman did a great job of running the football, I mean, to the tune, what was it, 370 or something? Let's get it up. It was a lot. 316. 316 yards rushing. Uh, only 102 in the air on 17 completions. So that was kind of interesting. And Hampson was back in there. I thought that was something. You, you called for it. You were just a week week or so off, two weeks off, whatever it was. But uh, Hampson back in there. Well, but, Hendricks got to listen to me. But 316 yards rushing, I think that bodes well if you're an ETSU fan. And Western is more than a problem. I mean, I think they're going to give people fits here. So they've won three in a row for the first time since 2018, three league games in a row for the first time since 2015, and they've scored more than 40 points in each of the wins. Now, let's tamper some expectation here for Catamount fans. Cole, if you're listening, because <laughs> essentially he's the only one. But those wins have been against three of the other four teams not in the Southern Conference title hunt. So, yes, a strong showing these last few weeks, but they're in for a different kind of animal this weekend. Of course, we'll talk about that more Thursday. And we'll talk about scenarios, too. It's a three-way tie at the top of the Southern Conference, but we'll talk about those scenarios because we have, like, another hour of show to get yeah. to. And I know people can only stand so much of our voices, even though we like to listen to them. Um, honestly, a couple of snoozers elsewhere. Stanford scores 35 at the first 42 against the Citadel in Birmingham. They score in all three phases, offense, defense, and special teams. Had three rushing touchdowns, a Montreal Washington 68-yard punt return, and my favorite name of the SoCon, Midnight Steward. A 94-yard fumble return for a touchdown. Right when it looked like the Citadel was about to make it a game late in the third quarter, what would have been 28-14 Sanford turns into 35-7 Sanford with that 14-point flip following the Jalen Adams fumble and the Bulldogs 5. Now, if I would have told you Liam Welsh would throw it only 17 times for 118 yards and no touchdowns, my guess is you would have thought that he had like gotten hurt or something along those lines, like didn't finish the game, something weird happened. In the tenure of Chris Hatcher, seven seasons now, only three times they haven't thrown for a passing touchdown against an FCS team. Funny enough, the other two are against ETSU. The 2018 game that Stanford actually won when Devlin Hodges set the record for FCS passing yards, and then the 2016 game that ETSU won 15-14 uh, to 14 in that big upset in the last game of the season. One of the Bucks' four ranked wins now since football's return after they beat BMI Saturday. 118 yards passing, second fewest in Hatcher's tenure, only to that Auburn game in 2019. That's always the outlier for 
Sanford. Didn't matter though. Bulldogs won. Classic Sanford. Find a way to be around 500. Four and five. Four and three and four in the league with just Furman left in league play on the 20th. I mean, this is how the season always goes, right? 18 minutes of offense for Sanford. Amazing. But when you get the three phases to score, that changes things. And the big hit, you know, they, they didn't have the – even when they had the ball, you know, you had the 69-yard touchdown run. So that takes away a drive that, uh, granted, it may have only added another minute and a half in the Sanford world of driving. But you talk about the 69-yard there. Then they lose a possession with the punt return. And then you lose possession because of the fumble return. You can see how they have limited possession, li- limited time, but they just didn't have enough time and plays. But it's almost like running the football, you know, hey, it looked like trying to win instead of getting numbers. And that's been my only criticism of Chris Hatcher. I think offensively, I think he gets what he wants, except for they can't finish the way they play because they're not going to slow down, not going to change who they are. They're not going to run the ball any, so they're going to do whatever. But I thought that was a – you know, whether it was just by the 18 minutes were designed and a couple of handoffs and, you know, I don't know, maybe Citadel dropped and, you know, just had three up there and, st- you know, just dared them to run the football, and they did. But that was a interesting turn. I thought, you know, Montreal Washington continues to be just a stud in every sense of the word. And Citadel's turnovers, I mean, just gets them again. It's, it's, that's the one thing in the last three years that they have been awful at, and that's why they've been not very good in the last couple of years. Chattanooga four straight, take care of Wofford pretty easily. It was funny, I think, looking at the the lines of the games, and you and me looked at each other and said, what's the most obvious one here? And I think Chattanooga was favored by, like, 19. And we're like, well, Chattanooga. <laughs> Still, that's a lot of points, but it's Chattanooga. Uh, they scored the first 21 all in the second quarter. Tyrell Price and Geno Appleberry had second-half touchdowns on the ground. In fact, four different players with rushing touchdowns. Price, Appleberry, of course, Lim Ford, and then Cole Copeland. Copeland adds a passing touchdown. Wofford, sweet mother. Nine passing yards. Kyle Pinnock starts. I still don't understand the entire quarterback situation there. One of seven on the day. No Bryce Corriston, Jimmy Wyrick, Peyton Derrick. Only three yards per carry for Wofford. Chad has it all in front of him and did nothing to make me think they aren't primed for heading into the biggest game of the Southern Conference year to date for any of the programs that are in the SoCon chat versus Mercer this weekend. Uh, of course, both of those teams at 5-1 and one, ETSU as well. That's the three-way tie at the top of the league. And apparently Penix may be that they go back to the run attack that we've been asking for because they had 15 carries. I don't know if that was by design or the pass rush for Chattanooga. I, I don't even want to watch the game. I, I know they had 137 yards solo offense. And they had a punt return, which is their only real um, – they forced turnover, got a field goal out of it, and then they took a punt return. But I I didn't think they'd get to 200 yards. I would have been safe saying 150. It, uh, this week – and we'll talk about it Thursday is Wofford Citadel. i got a lot of thoughts on that, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> oh, gosh. Do you even want to preview that game? or do you, I know you're either going to have a ton of thoughts or no thoughts at all. It's It, it, it will be quick, um, <laughs> my thoughts, but it'll be hot. It'll be hot. I, I hope the game is as quick as your thoughts because I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of people interested in it. All right, let's do uh, – that's it for their SoCon recap. We're going to talk women's basketball Southern Conference preview. After this time out, send us a sidekick on the Buccaneers. Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles. Harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. 
women's basketball preview. Are we going straight down the uh, preseason top 25? I'm going to go off my preseason off poll. Okay. And I think ours were very similar. Similar, if not the same. Yeah. Well, let's uh, look at the standings quickly from uh, the spring, I guess. You call it the spring last year or whatever. Sanford. 11 and 2, Mercer 10 and 3. Those were the two teams with double-digit wins. Then Chattanooga was 9 and 5, Wofford 7 and 7, Furman 6 and 8, UNCG 6 and 8 as well, Western Carolina 3 and 10, and then of course ETSU 1 and 10. They make the coaching change and bring in Simon Harris, uh, who we will have uh, tomorrow on the Buccaneer Sports Network. The opener at Cleveland State. The Simon Harris era begins, and we will be there. 6 o'clock is tap. 5:30 is pregame. Okay, Sanford voted them number one. Uh, last year they scheduled aggressively in the non-conference, ended up going 3-9 and nine in non-league play, but behind transfers Andrea Cornoyer and Annie Rammel and my player of the year from two seasons ago, Natalie Armstrong, they turned it on in league play and won the regular season title before bowing out in round one to Coach Zell's squad. Uh, the final win for Coach Zell, as it turned out. Led the league in all three percentages, did Sanford field goal, three-point, and free throw. Defense was a bit lacking, finished sixth in the league in scoring defense, but such a well-oiled machine offensively. I think there's sometimes you look around at um, teams in on the men's side and the women's side uh, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of a plan. There's not a lot of parts working cohesively offensively. That is not the case with Sanford. They are fun to watch. From last year's team, Katie Allen is gone, as is point guard Raven Omar. Katie Jones also departs. Michaela Woolard moves on. Those four, though, were all outside the top four in scoring for the Bulldogs. Cornoyer, Rammel, Armstrong, and don't forget, Shantae Battle, who went down early in the year with a season-ending injury, back healthy. And that's a dynamic top four. They're joined by Annie's sister, Olivia, who was originally a Georgetown recruit. And they get 6'5 center Emily Bowman in from Vanderbilt as well. So they've got more size this year. Uh, they did get a tough break already. Kaylee Sticker tore her MCL and ACL in practice. Uh, a Clemson transfer. She's out for the year. But with the four major returners and a couple of other transfers, this was my runaway favorite, and I'll get to why I had them over Mercer because there was some dissension amongst the voters there. Well, and I think, if we're being fair, I think the top two teams are Mercer Sanford. I, I think that's a runaway, and who's going to be there? And I think they will be the cream um, of the crop. I, I think there are a couple teams. You know, we talked about ETSU football or Southern Conference football, and we thought there's top three, middle three, lower three. I think this is kind of similar, except it's top two, then more of a middle four, and then I think a bottom two. Mm. I think it's sort of two, four, two, if you will. That's eight, right? You know I'm not good at math. Yeah, it is. So um, I kind of feel like it's that. So I feel like Sanford Mercer, if they kind of hold serve, I think they will there will be a, probably an 11 and three will win the league. I think my guess is one will be 11 and three. I think Sanford, you know, 12 and four, Mercer 11 and three. I think somewhere in there, or vice versa, 11 and three, Sanford, Mercer 12. I think that's what it's going to break down. I think it's interesting. Sanford, you look at athletes, and Mercer has the athletes, right? Sanford has sort of the the gritty, kind of workman like effort athletes and kind of beat you down with back screening and. It's layup or threes. It seems like it, it's like it, you know, or if you know if the the center hits fifteen footers, right, or whatever. But I mean, it's pretty much layup three pointers. I mean, it's just working line. And then for Mercer, can they get up and down the floor, right? I mean, Shannon Tides, I, I love watching her play basketball. She's so athletic. Now she has some games she checks out on. I, that would be my only complaint about her. Is though sometimes you'll check a box score, and you're like, oof. Like, where'd she go? Like, I, I feel like if she was more consistent, I think she would be hands down player of the year. I think because the defense, the rebounding, 
You know, she can score it. She can dribble it. I think there's a lot there. So, I think this is just the top two. two I know, we haven't got to all of it, but the Sanford Mercer is the top two teams that I think are going to run away with the league. Let's talk Mercer. Terrible year in 2019-20 that saw the Bears roster lose a bunch of players early on in the year and in midseason. Essentially, they were left with just their three stars. Gave way to a typically strong season, though, last year from eight wins two years ago to 19 last year, a 22-point win in the SoCon Tournament title game and another trip to the NCAA Tournament. They still had those three stars last year, Amori and Neil Tyser. You just mentioned Shannon Titus and Jaron Doherty. But they also added a really talented point guard on last year's team in Jada Lewis from Georgia State. And that pushed them over the top. Those four combined for nearly 90% of the Bears' points. Still very top-heavy, but that fourth player made all the difference. Not back from that team, our Jill Harris, who played some quality minutes at guard for Mercer. Sierra Scott, who appeared just once. Emily Stradling, who played just 58 minutes all year. Kiana Barkoff who averaged just six and a half minutes per game. They do lose Lewis. That's obviously big. Double-digit per game scorer and assist leader. And then their tallest player, Naomi Van Ness. But she missed half the season with injury last year. Really, it's Lewis and Harris, in terms of big losses, who played all the point guard minutes and had 179 assists to just 87 turnovers combined, about a 2-to-1 ratio. The only question that Mercer needs to answer is who will play the point. Be that fourth reliable player. And to me, the answer looks easy if you look at who's in and India Banks who started 92 games at Miami. That's not Miami of Ohio. That's the ACC's Miami uh, over her four years with the Hurricanes and scored in double figures 12 times last year. And more importantly, led them in assists last year and had a plus assist to turnover ratio. Steady hand in the point guard position. I would be shocked if she isn't that fourth scorer and point guard. No, and it, just looking at the roster without seeing anything, I would agree that's probably who gets the nod. I just think defensively, they're so good defensively. They're so long. Again, that's where the athletic part comes into play for me. Susie Gardner, everywhere she has been, whether it's been at Arkansas at the Power Five or, you know, other um, mid-major type schools defensively. I mean, they held teams under 60 points last year, under 30% from beyond the arc. So they're not just, you know, guarding around the basket. But, they really, again, they got long players, long guards, long forwards that are athletic, can get out on the shooters. That's why I think they give some problems to Samford. That's why they can give some problems uh, to the rest team around the league. Now, again, I think the top two teams. And I'm curious, did you see the the Vanderbilt transfer when ETSU played Vandy? Uh, I remember her sparingly, but not a, see. That's my question. Like sometimes you see these transfer and at, at not just women's basketball, men's basketball. You see, you know, a seven foot or a six five women's center, yeah. something like that, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got it from Vandy. And then you try to think, okay, what did they do? So that's... And so typically in the SOCON, that is the case. If you see someone 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", they're usually not, and this is nothing against somebody, but they're usually not a great basketball player. Well, and, and the reason I was just kind of asking that was because I feel like Mercer tends to dominate the glass against Sanford. I was wondering if Sanford could maybe get some extra boards there, but I think Mercer defensively is going to be as good as they've ever been. And when they get to, like, 65 points, it's, it's very hard to beat the Mercer Bears. I know ETSU has been one of those teams that's kind of had that number and been able to get in some shootouts and win. But traditionally speaking in the Southern Conference, when Mercer gets to, like, 65 points, I think it was, like, 64 and some change. But when they get to, like, 65 points, they're very difficult to beat. You might be shocked by my number three, UNCG. I think this is going to be yeah, a team I think that we were. We weren't. I think I had them four or five, but yeah. I, I wasn't that far off. But I did not have them as high as you. I think they're going to make a big jump. I think it's a two horse race between Sanford and Mercer. You talked about it too, and I think it's a free for all for everyone else after that uh, to try and take that third spot. I'm taking the Spartans. 
They had absolutely no scoring talent last year, like the entire year. Had just none. Dealt with tons of injuries and still managed to win six league games, scoring 50 points per night throughout the year. I mean, that, that is incredible, scoring 50 points per night that you're able to win six league games. And the best up-and-comer in the league is back. Khalees Kane, I think there's a lot on her shoulders in trying to rise to third, but she does have more help this year. They will miss Tori Powell. She's gone from last year's team, their third-leading scorer. Rihanna Council also gone but she was their lowest scorer last year across the roster. Shatori Tyler is gone. Not a huge loss appeared in just 13 games. Reserve center Lillian Azundu also gone, just two and a half points per game. Expect Powell to be the only one that they truly miss in terms of on-court contributions. And she shot 29% from the floor last year, so they might be able to turn those attempts into a higher percentage of points this season. And along with Kane, who's one of their post presences, uh, their top two scorers are back. And CeCe Crudup and Pernilla Sorensen. But much like Shantae Battle for Sanford, don't forget a Spartan coming back from injury. And you saw her on the preseason all-conference team, Aja Boyd. 11 points, 7 boards per game with a team-high 40 blocks two years ago. They're expecting her back this season after she missed all of last year with a knee injury. That is going to be an impressive tandem down low with Kane and Boyd. And I know it's easy to forget about these players coming back from injury, and it seems like some of the voters have. But Aja Boyd was an all-league player. You know, Shantae Battle is a borderline all-league player, and I think those return, uh, those returners are really going to make that difference of being a, you know, quote-unquote, you hear this term all the time, but it, coaches will say, it's like we got another recruit in. You know, they're getting a recruit in, except they've got experience, already know the offense, have been in the system, and they know what to expect. I, I think just look at the way that Trina Patterson ended the season. Regular season, they won four or five. And that was, you know, they, had six, they were six and eight, so you four or five, you know. They started to find it. I started to get kind of going, got in a rhythm. I thought Kane was unbelievable at times, um, you know, being freshman, being able to do stuff. But you had Hurt six three, Boyd at six two. You're looking at the size. Obviously, we know what CC Crudup can do. I think Sorenston probably needs to find more of a range for her that would help out. But I, I was with you because I think they were picked six, uh, sixth by. Uh, the media and six by the coaches, but I had them four. I had them, I think I had them five because I think I had Furman four as I always do. But that being said, I had them a little higher, but I had them projected more of a 500 or above 500 team uh, because of some of the things of how they ended the season and because of getting Boyd back. Big Boyd fan. I think Kane's just going to get better. I think Patterson had sort of found something towards the end of the year. Can they carry that on? That'll be the difference. And, again, I think UNCG is in that middle four teams that we're going to talk about. Wofford, I have number four. I give a lot of credit to this Wofford team. They found a way to still get to 500 on the league year despite losing Chloe Wanick, Deja Green, and Cairo Booker from the 2019-20 team. Amazing to think that team won only one more conference game than the 2020-2021 team did, and the 2020-2021 team went on to the Southern Conference title game, something the 2019-20 team didn't do, and that group of players never did. Wofford doing so with some strong rebounding, taps in the league and rebounding margin, and not really having just a ton of deficiencies, just didn't have weaknesses. They were really, in terms of their team togetherness and just not having areas where you could exploit them, good enough to make that championship run. Of course, they came up short to Mercer, but they made it there. I know they scored 38 points in the title game. Okay. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, 38 points. This year, uh, they only uh, have lost one from last year's team, but it's a big one. Jamari McDavid, team leader in rebounding. They're in the team in scoring. Of course, a buck killer every single time that she 
played ETSU. It seemed like she put up like 18 and 13. Uh, but Lily Hatton is back, freshman of the year a couple seasons ago, ended up leading the team in scoring last year and finished as one of the top three-point shooters in the league. Jackie Carmen returned and struggled with efficiency, shot just 29% from the floor and 23% from outside, but was their second-leading scorer, Nia Lutz who killed ETSU last year, Helen Matthews and Aaliyah Harris, who split point guard duties last season, all of that back. So there's a lot returning. I think the question will be, can they repeat something that at every step of the way seemed unlikely last year, especially with everything they had to replace from two seasons ago? It's one of those where you look unbiasedly, impartially, and say, boy, that seemed like kind of a magical-type run. Like, how did they do that? And do they regress some this year? And in the run, I mean, they didn't play Sanford, right? Because ETSU had the upset, so they got to play the eighth seed in the second round. And I, I think that obviously helped. And ETSU gave them fits, and uh, there was some free throws that made it a little more ugly, like a nine-point win uh, in the semifinal game. But, I mean, that was a nip-and-tuck game, too. I think they overachieved. This is the one where me and you, I think, disagree on the most. Um, I think they're going to struggle this year. Lily Hatton was the only player that averaged double figures last year. They really had games where it was amazing. They could get to 75, 80 points. You're like, holy cow. And then they just hit that 50, 50, 52, 54, like just struggled to score. And I think that's going to be the case. And I think the teams that at least I'm on paper looking at, I think are going to either step up or improve. And I think Wofford overachieved. So this is my disagreement with you. I think they come back down. I could absolutely see that. And I actually had them, I think, six or seven. I looked closer, and I was like, ah, didn't lose a lot. You know, Carmen's bound to make more of her opportunities this year in terms of just not shooting at a 30% clip. But sure. I can totally see where you're coming from. Chattanooga is who I had five. Not spectacular last year, just, again, very solid at pretty much everything. Like Wofford, no glaring weaknesses aside from that they turned it over just a bit too much. Their identity post-Lakeland Bolden, who was pretty much their heart and soul of their team for many years. When she was there, she graduated after the 2019-20 season. I'm not really sure what that identity is, but, again, they were solid. Ground out nine wins in league play without a lot of flash. Incredibly... Their leading scorer found a way to come back. Still listed as just a junior, so don't expect her gone after this I'm year. Sorry, either. Ebony's still there. Uh, she's a junior oh still, gosh. apparently. I have oh no idea gosh. how. Ebony Williams, oh. joined by Abby Cornelius, the only players that are gone from last year's team, Anna Walker, Liz Wood, Bria Dial. That one will hurt. Uh, and Kelly Searcy between Walker, Searcy, and Wood, they've started just one game, so no big problem there. But Dial definitely going to be a glaring hole. Second leading scorer, most threes made on the team. Second on the team in blocks. Now, she wasn't very efficient from the floor, so there's opportunity there for the mocks to make more of those touches, but who will do so? I'll tell you the one player I like coming back outside of Williams and Cornelius, and this is someone that I talked a lot about last year. Sigrun Olafstadter has national team experience in her home country of Iceland. Struggled a bit transitioning last year, I think, but a year stateside under her belt, she could be much more of an impact player this year. No transfers and no real size comes in, so I do think this will be another grind for Chat to finish in the top four. Uh, though they did succeed in a similar situation last year. I expect them to again this year be in the top five, if only barely. Um, There's just not a lot of, I hate to say natural talent on the team, uh, but there's not a lot of athletes, you know, and I think they're going to have to resemble more of a Sanford than a Mercer, if that isn't stating the obvious, if they're going to have success. Just play really sound fundamental ball. Really struggled from the outside. I'm glad you brought up Olaf Sauter because I was going to bring her up. 13 of 58 from three. 
Now, she shot nearly 40% from the floor, but just 22% from three. So, obviously efficient everywhere else. But, you know, 80% free throw shooter led the team in assists. You mentioned the national team experience. I think if she can find the outside shot, if Ebony Williams can either find the outside shot or just not shoot the outside shot, I think that would help tremendously. And then I think either Pew or Walker, somebody has got to hit shots. They, they You look at the roster, my issue with them is who's going to hit shots. I mean, Brina Dial, uh, or, sorry, Bria Dial, that's 276 attempts off your team. So shots are going to go around. They didn't add at least a major piece that you could see. Now, you know, again, we haven't seen some of these teams. There could be a freshman or a, a sophomore. Didn't see a lot of action. Given opportunity, could step up. But to me, between Williams, Olaf Stoddard, Pugh, Walker, I mean, the, I mean, Dina Gerald's the only one I, I think it shot significant three-point attempts and hit him. He shot 39% from beyond the arc. I guess Bria Dow shot 150 attempts. So I, they need some three-point shooting because the game is just that way, right? If you're – you don't have to take and hit a ton, but at some point you have to take and hit some. And to me that is a big glaring weakness for the Chattanooga Mocs is if they need to – for left open to hit shots. And I know there were some teams that just dared them to shoot threes and they shot under 30% for the season. So I think, obviously, Dial's a big miss, or big loss, I should say, but their outside shooting is so questionable, that's why I had them middle of the pack. I say that they have to play a lot like Sanford in order to have success. There is a huge, huge difference between Chattanooga and Sanford, obviously, and that difference comes in the form of Andrea Cornoyer. Like, I talk about sure. sound fundamental basketball, but she is an athlete. Like, she, we got some athletes in this conference on the women's side. Um, Maybe not on every single team, top-level athleticism, but like Shannon Titus, Andrea Cornoyer, I mean, really, really impressive. And then, of course, I just think overall, you know, size, pedigree, all favor Sanford. I don't think Chattanooga is going to be near Sanford in the standings, but if they're going to have success, they have to make shots easier. They have to get open looks from outside. They have to play together, work for the best shot, uh, because they're not going to have those top-level players this year. ETSU, this is where I have them. They're coming off literally their worst year in program history. And of course, we will talk more about ETSU in depth extensively as the year goes along. But crossover season, it's just, you know, the day before the season starts, we've got these previews ready. And unless we're going to do like 12 segments of show, um, we've got to just touch on what they've got going on uh, for at least the first couple of weeks. But 4 and 16 last year. Since they started playing 20 or more games 45 years ago, their few, fewest wins in a year was seven. They make that coaching change we talked about, Brittany Zell out, Simon Harrison, and it's expected to be a much more up-tempo, back-and-forth style game, which Harris is hoping will kickstart an offense that had no players. You talk about only one player for, uh, who was it, Chattanooga that averaged in double figures? Yeah. yeah, no players for ETSU that averaged in double figures That's not good. last year. No. Um, so they want to turn things up, turn up the heat on opponents, and obviously turn around some of their results. From that team, Last year, a large number of changes. Amani Williams gone, Shante Brown too, Shania Jackson and Elise Stafford, who both had great stretches of their careers with the Bucks, but largely ineffective last year. Shania now at Jacksonville. Elise stayed out at, excuse me, Elise stayed, Elise Stafford uh, out yeah, at Utah State. Say, Elise stayed out at Utah Stafford, yes. Uh, Jasmine Sanders gone. Kelly Post, the senior day sensation and great story, uh, rounds out her career as well. Also, the Bucks will be missing for a large part of the season, if not the whole season, Makaya Dowdell, who just had her first child recently. So that means of players from last year's team, the Bucs have Kaya Upton, Amaya Adams, 
Ja'Kai Davis, Carly Hooks, and Abby Carrington in terms of players that are available at the start of the year. The good news, good news for them is that Hooks and Davis were their top two scorers. Uh, the perhaps better news is that they brought in a ton of transfers that ETSU hopes make a difference right from the get. Um, not looking for any adjustment years there. Most notably, the transfers, Jayla Roberts, double-digit scorer from North Alabama, Jameer Houston from Miami, Demiah Griffin, who averaged 14 points per game in five games at Utah, UT Martin, in which the Skyhawks played Southern Conference opponents, just to try and draw a parallel there. So five Southern Conference opponents they played, she averaged 14 per game in those games. Those are the three big transfers. You've got the returners. What's your outlook for the Bucks? Well, I think they'll be able to score because the style of play is going to be different. I think just the push it, press it, and I know Coach Ezell pressed at times, but I think the tempo, the number of shots, the number of possessions they want to get will lead to more scoring. You know, this is maybe one of the bigger unknowns. Anytime you get a coaching change, anytime you get a complete system change, I will say teams tend to generally, and just West Carolina football, right? You get a new coaching change. Sometimes you have an initial uptick going, so I think ETSU will be on an upswing. I think Ja'Kiah Davis could have a monster year because I think that style of play at her size will help. I think it will get her even more looks, you know, in the exhibition game. And I know it's hard as exhibition, but Demaya Griffin just shot the lights out of it. Can she continue to do it? I mean, that's really where they struggled, shooting the basketball. Can Courtney Moore, who as a freshman – and still this is freshman, obviously, because um, last year didn't count for whatever reason. So, Courtney Moore, I think that's a player that we saw in practice. We're like, man, she could fill it up, and then in the game didn't translate. Yeah. Okay, well, now she's seen college basketball. Now it's a different system. Can she get some confidence to get some shots to go down? I thought they got a little bit more experience in the post, and I think with obviously a couple of transfers uh, or three transfers, but I think that's going to be huge. Get some experience in a pose. Let Jakai work with them. Then get some of the guard play to just go. They're going to rotate in and out. It's going to be faster. They're going to be able to get shots. This is the biggest question. I think they're going to, and uh, we're not giving our bold prediction on women's basketball yet, but it wouldn't shock me if three or four ladies are in double figures and they're averaging close to 70 points a game. That, that, that's, you know, and I don't even know if that's bold considering of the style of play is just different. But I am most excited about seeing how the post working in this system and especially just trying to get them down the floor, getting quick shots, just how the speed of the game, because we know, and I would argue this to anybody, ETSU men's and women's basketball over the last 25 years, if you look on the floor of athleticism, they're always in the top. Maybe they're not the most athletic every year, but they're always in the top looking at some of the exhibition game, they are athletic. They were athletic last year. Using athleticism, I think, is going to help them. I may have skimmed over Courtney Moore when I was mentioning those returners, but you and me were both very high on her last year. And if, if she can take those strikes, she is just so smooth moving around the court. She can shoot it. Um, and she had stretches last year. Stretches, right? Not consistent. She was injured a lot of the season, but stretches. concussion that lasted a yeah, while. Yeah, and then there's little... a recurrence of it, and just things didn't pan out in year one. But this strikes me as a system that is going to fit her a lot better. So I, it was interesting. Kyle Upton actually, I think, played the, and I'm going to use this term loosely, the shooting guard in the setup in the first game. And I think, it, but it got her out in space and speed and led to getting to the rim. And I think if you can get Upton in hooks, 
going to the rim a lot as maybe an off guard. I think that is something that is going to help those ladies. And I think just to see the different – and sometimes you have a change, right? There's the initial energy. There's just something different. And then year two, you get some stuff going. I mean, year one for Brittany Zell gets to the championship game. You know, year one for Karen Kemp, her first two games she ever coached at ETSU – 100, 605 points. DTSU didn't break 85, I think, the previous four or five years before that. So there's just always an initial sort of, you know, kind of taking over different energy field of the program when you get that. Does that translate into wins and Southern Conference wins? Obviously, they're the biggest coin flip, I think, in the league. But if, if you were to tell me, hey, they finish 500 and are fourth in the league, I, I would buy it. If you tell me – a little bit of a rough year, they're going to be seventh. I would be a little skeptical of that. But they're coming off a four-win season. Yeah, so it, it's not hard to, to to really argue with people when they say, well, they've got, it's them in West Carolina at the bottom. Yeah, I think that's it. How much can you turn around a program in a span of you know seven, eight months, right? Like how far can they come? Because, as we mentioned, historically bad season. One of the worst in program history, four wins. Right below Western Carolina, who made some improvements, and we'll hear about in a couple of seconds here. I do think, starting in terms of game one, uh, Cleveland State is going to be a difficult opponent. They beat ETSU here a couple of years ago, right after, about 48 hours after, the Bucks beat Wake Forest for their first Power 5 win in over a decade, and there is nothing that killed the party like that loss to Cleveland State. Both of the players that scored in double figures that day for Cleveland State, uh, Mariah White, and I can't remember the last name of the other Mariah. They were both Mariahs. Both are gone. White led the Horizon League in a ton of different categories last year, but she's gone. Cleveland State's going through a bit of a transition in terms of who is going to produce. Obviously, as you can imagine, when somebody leads you in like every category, that person is gone. What's going to happen next? They do have a couple of transfers that will be interesting to watch. Um, obviously, difficult to start on the road so far away from uh, Johnson City. And then they've got Bowling Green on Thursday night. I think it is a winnable game against Cleveland State. Chris Kielsmeyer's in his fourth season. For the Vikings, he does a good job. He's a good coach. They are the last two seasons, eighteen and three in non-conference play. So, obviously, they've figured that portion of the season out to an extent, and that is what will make this situation difficult because they have had such success. I think the DTSU may be the more talented team um, tomorrow night, but. Uh, you have to put it all together. And how long that will take also will determine how many wins this team can get. Okay, uh, Furman, you mentioned they're always, you know, 500 team, right? Consummate 500 Southern Conference team. Had their first sub-500 season in SOCOM play since the 2012-13 year because there was just no help for Tierra Hodges last season. Such a special player, averaged a double-double, but no other player even averaged double-figure points. No other player above 4.3 rebounds per game last year. And they didn't have that killer instinct defensively that we've seen from them at times. Bottom two in the league in block steals and turnover margin, giving it away too many times, too easily, too many mistakes. As they had an injury-riddled point guard spot, they definitely missed the presence of Milikum and Olovich and Leger Davidson in the backcourt after they both departed after the 2019-20 year. We knew the backcourt depth would be an issue last year, but it was certainly magnified with some of those mistakes and turnover issues for the Paladins. Uh, there's three gone from that team, Matty Griffon, Taya Hunter, and this career felt like it was never going to come to an end. Selena Taborn is finally out of the league as well. She was the most enigma of the league yes. because you would sit there and go, gosh, she'd score 25, 30 a game and would be incredible. 
and then she would like just not even be in a lineup or play. Or I, I don't know what the issue, or she would disappear in the game you're actually watching. I, I don't know. She should have been, I think, one of the top 25 players, had all the tools to be a top 25 player in a league when you talk about points, rebounds, block shots, change the game, just never materialized. I think I, she could have been a top three or five player in the league if she would have been able to keep up that freshman form that she had. Uh, but obviously she was unable to um, big space heater inside. I mean, like she just cleared out the lane um, was really their only inside presence, but her play kind of diminished over time and who's going to replace her and be at least someone that can eat up that space inside and be a presence in the paint. That's a prime concern for the Paladins. They do have their top three scorers back Hodges again, someone that seems like they're never going to leave just so, so good. And maybe it's just magnified in my mind because she is another one that just, does not take it easy ever on ETSU. Sydney James and Tate Walters also back. Walters and Periskevi Koilia, their two main point guards are back as well. Uh, they'll hope that each of them can be out there more this year and that they're a year older and wiser in running the offense and trying to avoid turnovers that hurt that offense that averaged under 60 points per game last season. So I actually have them seventh. I, I know you're very much of the belief that if a team is over a period of time the exact same in terms of results regardless of how they get there as Furman has been for so many years heck they had four years in a row where they were seven and seven in the league right now that streak ended a couple of years ago but they're within a game or two still it seems like every single season you then follow that logic until you are proven wrong I think this will be the year I'm trying to anticipate instead of react and I could be wrong I hope Jackie Carson fights you but I'm <laughs> just going with I, I just that's just who Jackie and her teams are and, and I just feel like that they'll figure out a way Six and eight, seven and seven, eight and six. That, I, I think they'll live in that area, and I don't know why, but I'm just going to go until they prove me wrong. That's where I'm going to continue to put them. They tried to bring in a bunch of size with Taborn gone. Six three, Kate Johnson is added. Katie Whitaker, so we have a Kate and a Katie. Kate Johnson is six three. Katie Whitaker is six five, and they brought in a six foot one, uh, Jada Sessions. So they tried to bring in. I have another six footer, but it's a guard. But they are trying to because. Jackie, being a former post player, likes size, likes post play, likes to go inside. Inside out's the way she wants to run her squad. And, yes, Hodges needs help and needs help. And if they need somebody to be more um, day-in and day-out workmanlike. And, again, I don't know that they need all-conference-like performers down low, but they certainly need somebody to give them – you know, ten and eight, ten and seven, consistently, and maybe the backups giving you five and five. I mean, something where they can get to fifteen, twenty points, get to about thirteen rebounds, and do it by committee, and maybe that would help and take some of that off. But I, there's no real rhyme or reason why I put them there, other than what you just said. I, that's just history, right? Every time I look at them over the years and I try to predict where they're going to go, that's where they fall, and so I'm just going to keep going with it until. They have a couple years where they're not. I don't blame you. It's a lot like the Titans, right? Like, they go on the road and win. They're confusing me this year, but other than this year, that's who they are. But but seriously, I mean, they they lose to the Jets. They go and beat the Rams. Like, a team that maybe wins some games they shouldn't, but loses some games that you think that they they would absolutely win. So, the Furman Paladins, the Tennessee Titans of the Southern Conference in women's basketball. Western Carolina, we've come across them at the bottom of the league, in my poll at least. I, again, would call it an improved team last year. I know that sounds weird being that they went 6-18, and 18, but that's their most wins since 2016-17, and their three league wins tied for their most since 2013-14. Uh, 
they were going through a bit of a reformation with Jewel Smalls, who was their do-everything point guard, transferring to Delaware State, or Delaware, I should say, I'm about to say Delaware State, but it was Delaware after the 2019-20 season. They get uh, Kyla Allison from MTSU and Nadia Marshall, a JUCO transfer, and Zenoria Cruz is a true freshman onto last year's squad, and they're the three leading scorers for the team as they truly went to more of a team approach instead of just being the Jewel Smalls show. Uh, but they still finished bottom two in a majority of statistical categories, both offensive and defensive. I think they're going to be improved again. I don't know if that's going to translate to a ton more wins in conference, but they've got Marshall Cruz and Allison back. Timber Motes, their fourth-leading scorer and their most veteran player, she's also back. And I'll say this for Kylie Hill. There was the one-time transfer rule. Players like Motes, Allison, Marshall, they could have left and probably gone somewhere else and – I don't know if they could have started at another Division One school, but they certainly could have gotten minutes, probably won a few more games, but they stayed. And with their top four scores and a few more transfers in to add to what they had last year, I think this can be a group that maybe doesn't threaten the top of the standings, but is pushing for that middle of the pack if they can win a couple of tight games, which leads me to how I think this entire conference is going to be. I don't think any more than 10 wins is going to be at the top of the league. I think that Western, if they are at the bottom, is probably going to be a four or five win team. And so we're going to see a lot of victories from all eight teams. We're going to see a very tight range from top to bottom that is maybe only four or five games big. That's how I see the conference going this year. Yeah, I've not thought of it in everyone else's win totals. I just think, you know, the top two are going to have three. One will have three, one will have four would be my guess, or two and three. Like, I think it will be very minimal. I, I just don't see a lot of people pushing – right to second without seeing results in a different year and a non-COVID year and everything else. Without seeing any results, I just feel like, you know, the top could be right there. And then I'm with you after that. I mean, you could have five, let's see, six teams left. You could have five or six teams, you know, hanging around near the 500 where they just continuously either hold, serve on home court or beat each other up. I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, generally speaking, if you have – you know, a couple teams with two or three losses, there's at least one at the bottom, you know, to, to take a lot of lumps. But looking at what Western was able to do and how they played towards, again, they picked up, what, three conference wins, first time in a long time, really started to get things going. Now LaPlante's gone. Who's going to take more threes? Who's going to make more threes? I think that would be a question. But they looked different when we got a chance to they see did. them last year. They looked like, and I'm not being disrespectful or, or trying to be disrespectful, but it looked like a basketball team. It was not a throw it over here, let somebody run around, jack some shots up, or a couple people jack shots, everybody else, you're just here to give them the ball. Like, they ran sets. They got back on defense. They did some things. It was like basketball-type plays. And I think he, uh, he being Kyle Hills, did a nice job to try to slowly turn a battleship in what has been a sunk ship for a long time in Cullowee for women's basketball. So, I mean, other than when Yali Kelly Harper was there. Yeah, that's you right. Know, and took him. So, right. it's been a while, and Coach Hill can continue to move this. And man, he gets to five. I think about if everybody had at least five wins in the league. I, I seriously How think that might be where it's headed. If Kylie Hill can get this team to 500 this year or next year, give the man a Power 5 job and a very large check right away. Unbelievable. I mean, that would be absolutely incredible. Or lifetime deal at Western. Something. Yeah, yeah, something. I mean, pay the man. I mean, that would that is an impressive – because they're about as down and out as any other program in the country. Yes. And they're slowly getting there. Now, can they take those extra steps? That's what's going to have to be answered this year. Yeah. Well, and that's our women's basketball preview Bang. show. Now we got uh, – just hit a bumper. Uh, just hit a bumper or something. You're, yeah, you're done with it, aren't you? By this time, I think everybody's done with it. 
spectacular. I probably should have hit this. It seems like a fitting time for it. You've made it halfway through the marathon. <laughs> when do you get to that point where enough is enough? Haven't you ruined my life enough already? It's hour two of Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You're actually well into hour two at this point. Buck basketball buzzer beater blowout. Oh. Wow. Will Ferrell coming in hot. Stop it. Will Ferrell coming in hot. Okay. If Will is done, I'd like to continue. Buck basketball, buzzer beater, blowout. All right, Jay Sandoz, it is game week. How pumped are you? I'm jacked. I am. I'm so excited. Like, crossover season does take away a lot of mine and your life. I mean, it just does. And the travel and everything. Matter of fact, i got to figure out the flight, the men's team. Booked my flight for Saturday, same time of the Mercer football game, which I told him that's going to be tough for me to make. So I've got to figure that out. I've got to fly. I got to fly by myself down there some, and figure out when I'm getting to the um, Fort Myers. But it's that time of year. It, you know, you're going to do some weird Cleveland day and a half trip or day yeah. trip, and mm-hmm. you know, kill yourself, get there and back, and come back. So we get ready for you know Friday, Saturday, doubleheader Sunday. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and then you know Sunday, even while tissues playing. Mm-hmm. Tennessee, there's a you know you're going to handle TV right at two o'clock, right as that game's ending. You're going to jump on TV, so there's just you know it's a lot. I mean, if anybody would like to send any um, spirits our way, would be great that uh, we could enjoy. Come uh, I don't know May, yeah, that March. Seems like in, the next in, time, yeah. Into March, I feel like there's always a day where we just we just take off and take a deep breath, and it's like all right, we got a softball game. You know what? We're going to miss one. We're, <laughs> yeah, right. we're going to take a day off. We're just going to miss something. We'll be back with you. So, that being said, I do love this. I am very excited for your broadcast tomorrow, Cleveland State, um, and then, obviously, men's basketball. Very excited for the App State Tennessee quick swing. That's right. Friday and then Sunday. That's a heck of a way to open the season. We'll talk more about that on uh, Thursday. In Buck Basketball, Buzzer Beater Blowout, we are on our second-to-last segment, and we can really start covering lots of ground because, quite honestly, Jay Sandoz, Buzzer Beaters have really thinned out over the last four seasons. We're up to... The year I came to ETSU, 2017-18, third year of Coach Forbes. The season I think I quite honestly had the most fun in since being here in Johnson City because of the team literally being unbeatable for like almost two full months. It was uh, phenomenal indoctrination into Buck basketball for obviously not really knowing the program the way I do now. I knew of it, just didn't know it the way I do now. Kind of a ho-hum start to the year. Lose three of your first five. Now, two of those losses were to Northern Kentucky and Kentucky. Games you didn't want to lose, but were more or less expecting to lose because the Norse were coming off an NCAA tournament appearance in which they actually lost to that same Kentucky program by just nine, and Kentucky is, of course, Kentucky. So no panic there. Then you lose your fifth game to Troy, and I remember that one being a bit cringeworthy because it was at home and people said, oh, Troy. But you have to look back at it. Troy was also a tournament team from that year before. So two and three through five. But then you rattle off four straight wins, including getting some revenge on NKU, playing them a second time, that rare non-conference split double, I guess you'd call it, uh, beating them at home. And then the Bucs go into number 10 Xavier. Oh, my gosh. A game I will always remember, Jay uh, Sandoz, mostly because of how painfully it unfolded. It was – I remember pregame 
that the Musketeers coaching staff is begging their players to get in layup lines, and they're doing dunks and doing selfies with the stands and almost laughing. I mean, they were top ten, I think tenth exactly. Yep. And I remember them just laughing at ETSU. And then ETSU jumps out to the 39-14 lead, or whatever it was. Got up 20. Up by 22 with, like, 14 minutes left. 22. Oh. And then and then the, the play that, again, shows sometimes coaches on another level of what can happen. But you're sitting there, and you're thinking, okay, who is going to take the big three for Xavier? And then Kareem Cantor takes it. So that's Enos Cantor's brother. We ETSU had played him at his previous school four times, and he had had two points in the previous four games. And then he transfers to Xavier, which is a shock, I think. And then a minute ago, he hits the three, ties it 66. ETSU, why Jermaine Long was allowed to take a shot, I'm still yet to know. <laughs> and I like Jay Long. He's my guy, but he took a shot. And then Trayvon Blewett, one of the best players in America. He hits a shot, and then DeSante Bradford gets to – you know, try to get to the rim. It was a busted play. Sutter seventy takes a wild three that, yeah. that doesn't go down, and it was it was one that just being around Coach Forbes then and still talking to him to this day a lot. It is one he will not let go. Like it was, it that night was tough. We went straight to Detroit. Um, Tobias, yeah, Detroit Mercy, right? Uh, Tobias Harris got everybody tickets to the. Pistons game. We still with the Pistons, and hung out with the team afterwards. And I remember for just looked like somebody had just kicked them over and over again. Mm. I mean, just brutal loss. ETSU was able to bounce back and get the win at Detroit Mercy. The reason ETSU wanted Detroit Mercy was the hundred people in the stands were heckling and calling for the head coach of Detroit Mercy to get fired on the spot. (laughs) And it was between that and Dr. Richard Sander being kicked off press row, uh, sitting to my right. Not the first or last time. No, no, it wasn't. And he had to go move, you know, 14 seats over. So he was at a press row and could yell, uh, was probably my two takeaways from Detroit Mercy, but that was tough, but it kind of, you know, the team give them credit. They bounced immediately back from November 26th to February 11th. That was the only time the Bucks lost, 68 to 66 on December 16th. They go on to win 16 in a row, the nation's longest winning streak for like a 36-hour period towards the end of it. And during the ridiculous run, the Bucks won on their only buzzer beater of the season on the road at a place that they don't win often. Bradford standing on the logo near midcourt comes right hand, right side, ten to go in a game. Bradford starting to attack. Bradford going against Fowler. Shot fake. Right hand layup. Good. 4.5. Furman's going to inbound. John Davis with it. Davis going with three, with two. He can't get a shot off. I think the game's over. Right side. Ball game. See ya. Bucks 19 and two now for the Paladins in their last 21. Streak over. 62-61. Bradford the game winner. I do have questions about the call. What is the 19 and two stat? I wish that. What was the nineteen and two set? I yes. think it was uh, was that uh, I want to say they had lost 
19 of 20. So it was their second win there, but you said 19 and 2, so that is right for Furman, but then you said free chase. You know, my head was spinning. I remember you saying after the game, you're like, yeah, I got a couple of texts. People had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I, if you could hear the call, just that's a place ETSU had not won. Mm-hmm. Game was a little chippy. The football team over there, which I – the football and lacrosse at Furman, I give them credit. They do a great job, and they're allowed to sit and like switch into the floor. The yes, court. it's unbelievable. They are, and they do a great job. Like if it, if ETSU was allowed to do that, no one would complain. But when somebody else allowed to do it, it's like, oh my yeah, gosh, yeah, they can't sure. do it. Sure. But they do a great job of getting the atmosphere, and they got into a couple verbal wars with some ETSU guys, and. I, th- I think Jalen McLeod was one of them, and Bradford's another one. I mean, it just got them chirping and going, and ETSU was able to get a win in that situation. And clearly, I was a little juiced up in the game right there. Yes, absolutely. I got As caught up. Got caught up As in the moment. And yes, every once in a while, I think you know I do a pretty good job of, of being excited, but yet relaying pertinent information, this will go down as not one of them. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. It was so, a place ETSU had struggled to win and really had been hammered a couple of times there and been hammered a couple of times after there. So, you know, you can't take those wins lightly in Timmons. And, and I, I probably went overboard. I think, a matter of fact, when the play happened, I was, I was standing up and Kevin Brown had to slap <laughs> me to sit down. I can't tell you. When being courtside, now I have broadcast from other places like a hockey perch or like Little Rock where I'm up on a, yeah. you know, concourse level where yeah. nobody sees me or even last year in Freedom Hall where I'm in concourse level, I'd stand up some just to see better. But courtside, I don't know, maybe one or once or twice I've ever stood up in excitement, which is breaking everything in the book. So that being said, um, I was happy to get the win. You want me to break down the call? I can't. I have no idea. No, I, I, what you heard is what I remember, so there you go. I thought it was a good call. I was confused about the stat, but I thought the energy I mean, it was and a, excitement, I, mean, I loved it. Just looking at Mike White's headline, it wasn't easy, but ETSU men's basketball team finally shook off the Furman funk, and that was there. So, all right. Uh, DeSante Bradford, Southern Conference Player of the Year that season, three times also con tournament team. To me, and you watched him more than me, Never someone that blew me away when I watched him for that season of overlap we had here, but just really solid at everything. Led ETSU in scoring, rebounds, assists, and steals that season. Just pretty impressive versatility and someone that went on to play pro, someone that came back to ETSU and served in uh, a GA role, was it? He was the grad yeah. assistant? Yeah, so yeah la- it was last year, wasn't it? I think it was last, yeah, year. last year. And and still – Now back overseas playing again. And still, when I watched him last year in practices – Still looked like the best player on the court to me. Like, what he can do still. Again, not overly explosive or super athletic, but is explosive and athletic at marginal levels and can just do everything on the court. I just want to call Steve Forbes because the game, and I'm sure you're going to get to that. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here. When I get to the three last home games, are you getting there? Oh, yeah, I'll get there. All right, okay. Well, I'll I'll wait to get there. Bradford. Was so, Now, he is – people forget this. That was a Murray Bartow get in freshman year was with Coach Bartow. Mm. Um, small town in Humboldt, which is just, you know, what is that, a little northeast of Jackson where they got A.J. Merriweather. And that was uh, uh, Penny Collins, Brian Collins, head coach of Tennessee State, had somebody tell him, like, hey, he was on him for another school. And so when Coach Forbes got the job and got – Penny Collins, who brought T.J. Cromer with him, 
part of the deal was he was able to talk to DeSante Bradford to stay because, you know, Coach Collins is a Tennessee guy, you know, played at Belmont, now at Tennessee State. So he's got a lot of ties, knew a lot of, you know, a lot of that level type players. And so 1A, single A, Bradford just didn't get a lot of looks. And so ETSU was able to be one of his few offers, and he got it. And one of the reasons why is he was a freak athlete, and he turned himself into a freak athlete that can shoot, that he was big and physical too. I think that's what people don't – I think the TBT it showed. Now, certainly playing pro ball and getting more time in a weight room, and you can still get more um, weight on you and strength. But by his senior year, he was very strong guard, lean and strong compared to some of the other guards. He could get to the paint. He could dunk on people. He developed the three-point shot. He was a great assist man, and because he could jump, he wasn't afraid to go in there and rebound. So he was an all-around great guy. Why I think he won the Player of the Year award, I'll get to in a minute. So that's the only buzzer beater this year, and the rest of the season was actually rather horrifying in how it fell apart. February 12th, ETSU plays UNCG. Now, I want you to talk about this day because you get a speeding ticket on the way to the game, and right before tip-off, our photographer, Dakota Hamilton's girlfriend, breaks up with him. Yeah, it was a bad day. Bad omens, oh, yeah. and the Bucks yeah. got blown out by 18 that night, ending that 16-game win streak. Yep, that, was, uh, that about sums it up. Uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> when you got the speeding ticket, just crossed in from Virginia to North Carolina, and uh, it was one of those where the speed limit had just changed, and then you know this old speed trap, bam, I got hit. So I was already in an ill mood, and then virtually, I don't think anybody else showed up but DeSante Bradford. Um, ETSU just 56 points, which is rare, considering mm-hmm. if you look at all the stat lines. And Bradford, I mean, look at this, at 25, or I'm sorry, 21 points. He had six rebounds. He just had one assist, course, nobody else scored, and he had four steals. Yeah, so, four assists the whole night for the team. But it, it was a situation where I think UNCG had lost a, a pretty close game at ETSU, you know, they had that game circled. And that had been the, the year after the dust-ups, right? There were two or three dust-ups with UNCG and the post-game handshakes. The teams really didn't like each other. Marvin Smith was a good instigator. Him and T.J. Cromer tended to not like to shake hands after the game. Francis Alonzo doing what is now illegal, the old head bob thing. Got to shoot a lot of free throws. Anyways, it, it was just a... They had the game circled. They were ready to go. ETSU had had a lot of things go their way. And I think in basketball, the ebb and flow, sometimes it goes the other way. And when you do that against a good team, a team that wouldn't end up going into the um, NCAA tournament, then certainly see how you had a, a lopsided loss. That would start a sequence in which the Blue and Gold would lose four of their last five in the regular season. And UNCG in the league title game held ETSU to 47 points. So in those two matchups, the last two of the year, 103 combined points for ETSU. Really, the Spartans kind of the thorn in the side of the Bucks that year, led by Francis Alonzo, who fell short the year before against the Bucks, which we talked about in our last Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater blowout. They get their tournament trip, and really that final stretch of regular season play. The play I remember most was at Freedom Hall against, I believe it was the Citadel, and there's one minute left. ETSU, I think, is e down two, maybe? Maybe they're down one and take the lead, but an alley-oop to, I believe it was David Burrell. Oh, yeah. That was yes, just yes, yes. monstrous. And then Zane Nijdawi, like, the damn alley-oop never even happened, comes down and just puts a dagger into the box with a three from the left wing. Yep, that was, um, I'm trying to see exactly where that was in this rundown. Let, let, me, let me say this up. 
So I'm going to go back up to the box score, then I'll find the play. The The thing that got me was, okay, so DeSante Bradford, this was the game he missed. He had a little bit of an ankle injury. He went to shoot around, looked great. And I don't know what happened, like, did he go so hard at shoot around because they wanted him to go game speed to make sure he was ready. And then after all of that, they come back and they're doing warm-ups and he's in street clothes and he's like, I don't think I can go. And so this was the starting lineup. David Burrell, Peter Jerkin, Devontavious Payne, man-man, Jalen McLeod and Jermaine Long. Bo Hodges came off the bench for 17. Milad and Hartman's came off the bench for 14. But the only starter in double figures was David Burrell who had a monster game, 15 points, 10 rebounds, but trying to pick up the extra slack, Payne, McLeod, and Long, six points, eight points, seven points. Now, Jermaine Long did have seven assists, so give him a little credit there. But when he lost, when ETSU had been so dominant, and then you lose that game and you're thinking, okay. And Citadel is one of those teams, we talk about matchup, for whatever reason, has always given ETSU basketball fits. You know, West Carolina can't, but Citadel can't. You know, you know, VMI generally hasn't, but, I mean, it just happens. VMI gives UNCG fits for whatever reason. So, something about matchups. Then you turn around the next game, and Bradford is back, I want to say. Yeah, he was back. And, again, he comes back with a 19-point performance. On five shots. On Yes. Which is pretty yeah. unbelievable. But another tough loss to a very good Wofford team. Then Furman at home, who you got the buzzer beater. Clearly, they wanted to come back and get it. They actually had... Five guys in double figures. Now, why Devin Sibley, who was one of the players of the year, didn't start, I don't know. But then Bradford again, 19 points. But another loss by ETSU, 79-76. But I think the loss to the Citadel actually locked up the player of the year for DeSante Bradford. Ah, I see. So that's what I'm going I with I see. That. Okay. Everything's rolling. And you look at it and you go, ETSU won all those games. He misses one game and he loses the Citadel. Bang. Who had four wins that year. I think the voters looked at that right, wrong, or different and said, that's how important he is. Now, I think he was the best player in the league, and I'm I'm not advocating for he wasn't, but I'm thinking if anyone was on the fence, I think that won him the player of the year when he didn't play and they lost to the Citadel. Okay, we have to talk about 2018-19, too, uh, because there are no buzzer beaters there, and we've only got one more show left, and we've got two more years to cover. I, it's a year fresh in our minds, so I actually was able to recall a couple of these near buzzer beaters. Remember the shot from the Hawassi game? Was that a near buzzer beater? Uh, no, one oh nine forty four. No. Remember okay. the shot from open play to take the lead and eventually win the game had to come within the last twenty seconds to qualify for the segment. Jerome Rodriguez to move ahead of Winthrop, ever so close. Twenty one seconds left in the clock. Bucks mm. win seventy six to seventy four. Tight overtime win against Mercer, but the Bucks actually never trailed throughout all of overtime. You'll recall the next game, Jay. The Bucks almost gave up a huge lead late at home against VMI, but Bubba Parham. Couldn't hit a three to tie with just twenty, uh, with just seconds left. I should say twenty-four. That was a Milan Armas block, right? I believe I think it was Armas. Arm, was it Armas? Okay, it was a big man. I can't remember if it was Armas or not. Twenty-four wins, thirteen and five in the league. Seems crazy to me that all those victories, there really weren't that many close ones. Seventeen of them by seven or more points. None that fell into the buzzer beater category for this segment, at least. You recall the team. The Bucks lost to that season, Jay, the undefeated SoCon season for the team that it was all about that year, Fletcher McGee and Wofford. Yeah, not the, the the best memory, I, it's not obviously best in a good way, but the best memory I have of that was McGee was so locked in in that championship game. Bucks had kept him kind of bottled up, and he hit a three um, in the late first half. This is the semifinal game? Semifinal game, yeah. sorry. Semifinal game. He hit a three late first half, and then – 
the next possession, they swing it around. They make an extra pass to McGee. As soon as he catches the ball, I have no idea why I'm watching this, every player for Wofford turned and ran down the other end of the floor before it left his hand. Like it was a layup. Cam Jack, nobody stayed for a rebound. And I get like, okay, Murphy's going to go, Hoover's going to go. But Cam Jackson started running. I'm sitting there going, Trevor Stump's running down. I'm like, what are they doing? I mean, he's taking a shot. And, of course, it was nothing but net. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is so how locked in that, that you know, when he hits one, they're like, okay, he's got one. Let's get him again. They fed him the ball. And that was an, that was an impressive team. Similar to each issue's 30 and 4 romp that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, the Wofford team was a bit of a romp. And what was unfortunate was every close game that year, Lose Greensboro one, lose Wofford two in overtime, and that was one of my oh, favorite Wofford game. games. Oh. That was a that was the one where Mike Young and I use this quote all the time. Walked down across half court, and of course he always looked angry with his arms crossed. And the referee comes over there like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And he's yelled, "Steve, Steve!" And Forbes kind of just shocked, like looks at him. Now they're buddies, so I, I know Coach Forbes not thinking anything crazy, but he just goes, "Hey, it's a high level basketball game right here." And he's turned on, walks off, and I just lost it. I thought, you know, a little. I mean, this is like a minute to go in the game. You know, it is a tie game, and here he wants to yell at his buddy Steve Forbes, who they had a great relationship with, and just yell, "Hey, you know, whatever." I mean, when Forbes got kicked out at Wofford a couple years later, and we'll talk about that game too when we get to it. But it was funny that Mike Young was the one that was calming Steve Forbes down. Normally when the opposing coach gets tossed, like you're in a tight game, you don't really care. Wasn't but that earlier that year? Was it earlier that year they got tossed? It was the because December he, game, I remember. Did he? Yeah, yeah. it was. Because he had to sit out yeah, Reinhardt. You're right. That. that was that game. So Forbes gets tossed. Yeah, yeah, that year, uh, December 1st. Forbes gets tossed. And then, you know, the man that came to his rescue was funny. was Mike Young. Mike Young was like there and then. Coach Forbes was shocked post game. He had to sit up for Reinhardt. Luckily, it was Reinhardt. Didn't have to worry about I it. I still think he knew. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. He didn't know. And then the Illinois trip. The Illinois trip was that year, oh where the luggage God. got lost. We got to the hotel. Uh, first time ever I broadcast a game in sweatsuits because we got our gear thirty minutes before we were supposed to leave to go to the arena. So this is before the coaches. Uh, it was cool to wear the jumpsuits and stuff that people are wearing now, or pullovers and khakis. I don't believe men's basketball is going back to suit and ties, or it doesn't appear early this season. Now maybe when actual games are going, but the exhibition games that I've seen, most coaches are going with that. So that's uh, my most fond memories of that year, other than the El Paso trip, which is if I could go to that tournament every year, the Sun Bowl, sign me up. That was a great trip. It does seem like the SoCon over the last number of years has had the clear-cut team that almost needs to win it and always ends up winning it. Like UNCG with Miller last year and other Miller, right? Uh, ETSU with the 30-4 and four season, tying a SoCon record for most wins in a season. Fletcher McGee and the undefeated season with Wofford. And even before that, Francis Alonzo, it wasn't his senior year, but Alonzo gets his time in the sun. Like, it, it is pretty incredible. Okay, the last two years of Buck Buzzer Beater blowout will come Thursday. Wow, that's crazy. I'm All a little right. emotional. I really am. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are home. They are done. If they were committed, if they put, put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are home. Watch the, the rest of us. Put in that work, Jay Sandos. 
Javel McGee has been added to Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. Javel McGee. Jamari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A six foot six, two hundred twenty-five pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. It's about 37 yards, maybe. A little bit of a warm burner, if you will. All right, bold predictions. Terrible. Let's uh, see what I got right and you got wrong Buck again. Score 44 or more, you said wrong. Wofford less than 200 yards, yes. Much less, in fact. Like you said, in segment one, it could have been 150, and you would have been good. It was 136 that they had, and nine passing yards, one of seven through the air for Kyle Penix. Uh, wow. Uh, Green Bay over Kansas City. Yeah, That's the frustrating one because I had Devontae Adams will set a season high in catches, had 12 earlier this year. He'll have 13 or more versus the Chiefs. We knew when we made those predictions that Jordan Love was going to play. Correct. And I watched the game yesterday, and they absolutely should have won that game. I know that. They scored seven points. Okay, you score seven, you're not going to win. Mason Crosby missed two field goals. It would have been 13-13. Of course, that does change the whole dynamic of the game and everything. But if you just look literally, you make those two kicks, and the rest of the game goes the same, 13-13. So many things, they just shot themselves in the foot. They should have won that game. But you and me both got our Green Bay predictions wrong. Uh, Bucks will have a 100-yard rusher and receiver. Boy, I was 15 yards short on Will Huzzy. He goes three for 85. I thought you had it early, man. He uh, made those long catches. He could have had, like, 200 yards receiving, just hit a couple more of those deep shots. Uh, Holmes was over 100 yards, his 17th 100-yard game of his career. Uh, and then I had North Carolina, certifiably terrible at football. And they are certifiably terrible at football, but they still found a way to beat Wake, For- Wake Forest, who you had to figure would be a fraud. We just didn't know when it would be. And, of course, because I picked them, it would be this week. I had them winning by a touchdown or more. Uh, how brilliant is Vegas, by the way? The line was two and a half. UNC was down 18. They come back and win by three. <laughs> That's how it is, man. Unbelievable. They know something you don't. Unbelievable. Clearly. I mean, clearly they know something I don't. Also, we talked about that San Francisco-Arizona line off air a couple of times last year. Well, Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins didn't play. San Francisco seemed oddly, like, favored. They were, like, three-point favorites when we didn't know if Kyler and DeAndre were going to play. Well, then they didn't play. The line only increased by two and a half, but then Arizona blew out by 17. It was unbelievable. Very odd. Sort of like it. Oh, Vegas. It, it is so funny. The Titans lose their best running back, and they come out and land based. OBJ's gone. He went to. And it was like a 